Today we conclude not only our present series, but also our focus for the whole year, and especially on Sunday mornings, which has been on the topic of prayer. We began way back in January with two messages on our verse for the year, which you should all know if you're regular worshippers. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. This was followed by a series of 12 messages looking at people in the Old Testament who prayed, people in prayer. Then we moved to the New Testament, spent six weeks learning from the Lord's Prayer. And then six messages from the Old Testament character Elijah, whose prayer life is mentioned in the New Testament, under the title, The Man Who Prayed. And finally, to the book of Acts, in a series of five, on the prayer life of the early church, under the title, The Church That Prayed. Now, my mass is not brilliant, but I make that 30 sermons on prayer, with one to follow today. Now, my question to myself is, having prepared and then preached most of these sermons, is this. Am I any more devoted to prayer at the end of 2003 than I was at the beginning? And my question to you, many of whom have heard a good number of these messages, some hardy souls, perhaps even all, is this. Are we as a church more devoted to prayer at the end of this year than we were at the beginning? I don't mean do we know more about prayer, but rather do we pray more? Not just in time, quality, but quantity, but quality. Do we pray any more effectively? You see, In a church like this where we focus so much on preaching God's word, what we need to recognize is there is a world of difference between teaching and learning. In teaching, you impart information. In learning, you put it into practice. And for a Christian, both are essential. I can put it politely. When you stand before the throne of God finally... He will not ask you how many sermons you heard in Charlotte Chapel during your life on earth. He will ask you how many of them you put into practice. And he will ask me that as well. So let me throw another factor into the equation. One which affects how and when we pray. And that factor, of course, is experience. Recently I was talking to a fellow pastor who's passed through some very difficult and dark days said something very interesting to me. He said, it has changed my prayer life. I wonder if I ever really prayed before this. And sometimes God takes us through experiences, personally or as a church, that are so difficult that they force us to turn to God in prayer in a way that we have never done before. Because we have nowhere else and no one else to turn to. And in Acts 12, we have such an example from the life of the early church, this church that prayed. I've entitled it Prayer and Prison for obvious reasons, because at the heart of the story is a man who was in prayer and the church prayed for him and for his release. But I want you to think this morning, not only of that, but as prison, as that situation where, humanly speaking, there is no way out where only divine intervention will bring a solution. 
Some of you here this morning have been in that kind of prison in the past. Some of you, perhaps unbeknown to anyone else here this morning, is in such a situation where, humanly speaking, you can see no way out. And some of us may yet find ourselves in such a situation which catches us, I hope now, not unawares. And churches sometimes go through those kind of experiences. So look with me in Luke's account of this remarkable event. You'll find it in Acts 12. It will help have a Bible in front of you. The, the children read it wonderfully well for us. Uh, but we're not going to read it again. But it's page 1106. There are Bibles in the pews. Just take one if you haven't got your own here. And as we look at it together, let me suggest three simply, simple and easily remembered pegs on which to hang our thoughts. These kind of things annoy you, these alliterative things, just ignore it and focus on what's in the point. First of all then, impossible odds, verses 1 to 4 and then again in verse 6. The temperature gauge of opposition to the early church in Jerusalem had slowly begun to rise following the wonderful day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the followers of Jesus and the whole city of Jerusalem was in a turmoil. Growing opposition to the church. Threats had turned into beatings. Beatings had turned into martyrdom with the first Christian martyr Stephen stoned to death. Following that, we read in Acts 8, at the end of the chapter, at the beginning of the chapter, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Those left in Jerusalem seem to have regrouped under the leadership of James, the brother of Jesus, and kept a somewhat lower profile, some kind of accommodation between themselves and the Jewish authorities in the city. However, all of that was shattered, as we saw last week, when Peter returned from his missionary trip with the, with the shattering news, having visited a Roman centurion, stayed with him, eaten with him, the, uh, the incredible news to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that the same Holy Spirit had been poured out upon Gentiles, that you could become a Christian, receive the Holy Spirit, without first becoming a Jew. I don't have time to look at that again. You can get the tape from last week or listen on the internet. What it meant was that it shook everything up again. There was now no possible accommodation. No longer could the Christians be regarded as some kind of sect within Judaism, even if a somewhat aberrant one. And so this increased the suspicion of the Jewish religious leaders. And also the secular authority in the form of King Herod, the ruler appointed by the Roman power. Just to, by way of digression, if you're like me, whenever you read Herod in the Bible, it's a bit confusing. You're not sure which, which King Herod it is. It's a bit like the kings of England, you know, the ones who all call Henry. We know there are eight of them, and that the eighth one has six wives, but if you ask me to tell you what the other one to seven did, I always get confused, you know. Was that Henry the Fourth or Henry the Fifth? Or, and anyway, okay, just by way of explanation. The Herod in Acts 12 was not the Herod who appears in the Christmas story who killed all the babies in Bethlehem. That was this Herod's grandfather, all right? You just concentrate, you might get this on a quiz program or something, right? <laughs> Nor was this Herod in Acts 12 the one before whom Jesus appeared when he was on trial for his life. That was his uncle, all right? And this Herod 
Are you still with me? This, this Herod in Acts chapter 12 was not the one who appears later in the book of Acts and Paul the Apostle gives his testimony for him. That was this one's son, King Herod Agrippa II. So this was King Herod Agrippa I, alright? doesn't really matter, but you, but you might like to know. And, and he was not, as the children pointed out to us in the talk, he was not a nice piece of work. However, he was a skillful politician, and the two factors are not mutually exclusive, who, <laughs> not always either, after various ups and downs, he had found himself in control of most of Palestine, somewhat like Herod the Great, his grandfather, had had. However, like all Roman appointees, his tenure was always under threat from civil unrest. And the growing emergence of these followers of the way, as the early Christians were called, rang alarm bells. And there was another factor that also meant that the Christians were in for a hard time. Herod Agrippa, although given the title King of the Jews by the Romans, was not in fact a Jew. He was not a true-blood Jew anyway. He was an Edomite from the kingdom of Edom. And any good Jew would look down upon an Edomite. And so Herod, being a consummate politician, did all he could to win them over by supporting and promoting the Jewish faith, including the masterstroke of moving his administration from Caesarea back to Jerusalem. He, along with his wife, even played a prominent role in Jewish festivals, including reading the law in the temple on one occasion. You won't find all this in the Bible. It's in contemporary history from the time. So, recognizing that political and religious interests could dovetail nicely if he stamped down on these Christians, he set about arresting their leaders, intending, Luke records in verse 1, to persecute them. He then executed James, the brother of John, by beheading a fate that was decreed for murderers and apostates. I think this must have been a terrible blow for the early Christians. For James was the first of the apostles to be killed for his faith in Jesus. You may remember that Jesus had foretold that James and his brother would be baptized with the baptism of suffering like him. You find that in Mark chapter 10, verse 38. Nonetheless, it must have shaken the Christians who somehow hoped that Jesus would return before all this happened. And if that were enough, Herod, seeing how popular his moves were with the Jewish leaders, then arrested Peter, the key figure in the church, and put him in prison. Again, you see all the marks of a master politician here. Herod does this during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which culminates with Passover. It is the big Jewish festival, like Christmas. All right? The place would be thrown with pilgrims, thousands upon thousands of them, and Herod arrests the leader of this Christian sect, these followers of the way, and he leaves him there, and he waits until the festival is over, just at its climax. Once Passover is over, the next day, he'll bring Peter out for a show trial publicly, followed by summary execution, with maximum publicity. And so, on the night before his trial, we find Peter in the maximum security section of the jail, probably the fortress of Antonia on the northwest of the temple complex in Jerusalem. Instead of the normal two soldiers on guard, Herod doubles the guards. There are four squads on, on three-hour turns of four soldiers, two chained, one either side to Peter, and two more standing at the prison door to stop anyone 
breaking in. Herod doesn't want any slip-ups or rescue bids. Not that the Christians have the kind of resources to attempt anything or that any kind of public support behind themselves. However, Herod had probably heard the story, which you find in Acts 5, of how Peter and his colleague John had somehow got out of prison on a previous occasion. He was taking no chances. Listen, there were no human rights protesters outside the jail with placards reading Free Peter the Apostle. Now, if you had been a gambling man, which I hope you're not, you would not have put very strong odds on Peter lasting beyond the next 24 hours. Humanly speaking, he faced impossible odds. And that's the reason why I did all that explanation, to show you how everything was against him and the Christians. Now, let me remind you, as we've done several times during this past year, that many of our fellow Christians in the world today find themselves in similar situations. Just by way of example, on Wednesday I got an email from the Barnabas Trust, yet again, about the fate of Christians in central Sulawesi in Indonesia. Let me read you an excerpt, because it could be from the book of Acts. On Saturday evening, the 29th of November, two Christians, Ruslam and Arifin, both 30 years old, were gunned down in front of their young families as Islamic militants raided the church services they were attending. Two gunmen had pulled up on a motorbike outside the church in Tabamawo, 70 miles east of Poso, fired through the door just as the service was coming to a close. The worshippers had just been praying for peace. The attackers also hit the pastor's wife, Mrs. Sandra Tenka, aged 34, who was speaking at the time. She and two others are being treated at Ampana Hospital. The attackers reportedly used Indonesian military automatic weapons. On the 1st of December, the neighboring Christian village of Tiwas was attacked. Gunmen focused their fire on the house of the Christian chief. As the building was being riddled with bullets, a Christian by the name of Pian rushed out into the open and was critically injured. In Poso, two more people were hospitalized, having been shot on the 5th of December. As in the village of Tabamao, the attackers arrived by a motorbike. And then the report goes on to highlight the discovery of a plan to target, notice, Christian leaders. Targeting key figures within the Christian community is the avowed intent of Muslim extremists. Many Muslims and Christians have lived happily together for generations in this place, but Muslims, many of them coming in from the outside, extremists and militants, uh, they have a secret document that has been intercepted and passed to the authorities. An extract states, mobilize the masses to destroy the Christians, stun them with sudden and simultaneous attacks, kill their important leaders. A leaflet being handed out in mosque bears the same message. Join the waiting force with your finances, your soul, even your lives. We will carry out mass attacks to cause shock and kill Christian leaders. Points out that the police chief seems to be joining in with them and the fact that they're armed with latest military equipment suggests assistance from members of the Indonesian military as well. Now, this could be repeated over and over again in many parts of the world. What can they do about it? What can we do about it? Obviously, we need to write to people in authority, but frankly, the chances of anyone responding are pretty small. What can we do? What can they do? Well, we can do what the Christians in Acts 12 did. They prayed. Now, you might say, well, come on, that's just a bit of a letdown. There's all sorts of other things. Listen, prayer is the most powerful weapon in the Christian's armory. We're not going to arm the Christians in Indonesia and send them supplies so they can buy their own guns. That would be totally contradictory. 
What we can do is to pray. So notice the second feature of this story. Impossible odds are met with impassioned prayer. Luke contrasts the situation and the response. Look at verse 5. Chris pointed it out earlier on with the children. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Notice the first and obvious thing that the believers in Jerusalem joined together to pray. They didn't pray privately in their homes. They joined together They joined together in corporate prayer. They were united by a common bond to each other through their love for Jesus. I don't think the leaders of the church in Jerusalem had to spend a lot of time pleading with their members to come to the prayer meeting. Why not? Because the situation was desperate. There was nothing else they could do. No other weapon they could use. Nor do I think that the prayer meeting was boring and the prayers were pedantic. The word Luke uses to describe how they prayed is an interesting one. He says, they were earnestly praying. The word used there in the original, translated earnest, the root of the word, it's a medical term that means to stretch a muscle to its limit. Luke uses the same word in his gospel in a very interesting context. Luke 22, verse 44, describing how Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before his arrest and trial. And being in anguish, He prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. That's how the Saviour prayed. You might say, he was the Son of God. No sweat. Friends, he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Some of us are spiritually flabby because we have never exercised our prayer muscles very much. Sometimes, In the physical realm, you go to the doctor or you have a health scare and suddenly you find people are starting to eat more healthily and joining a gym or jogging down the road or whatever it may be. It takes a crisis to make us realise that our physical health is endangered unless we do something. Listen, our spiritual health is endangered and it may take a spiritual crisis to start us praying more earnestly. This leads to another factor about their prayer. All these things are fairly obvious. But they, they prayed specifically. They had only one topic on the agenda. The imprisonment and impending trial and execution of Peter. While there is a place, as there was with the church in Acts, for regular prayer, general prayer, you might call it, praise to God, crises always prompt us to pray specifically. And notice also that they prayed persistently. Later we learn that these believers were praying in a home in Jerusalem in the middle of the night. They didn't stop at a certain time having prayed out. They prayed and they prayed on into the middle of the night. Just an interesting question. This is, this is not to embarrass you. It's not in my notes, but uh, it just as much of interest. How many of you, just raise your hand, and it, it's no brownie points for this, but just as much of interest. How many of us have ever been to a prayer meeting where we've prayed right through the night? Just raise your hand if you have. Interesting. Well, maybe we should do that. (laughs) Maybe it'll take a crisis to get us to do that. That we've prayed through the night. It's not great merit in the time itself, but it shows the seriousness of the issue. So notice a third feature of this account, because the prayer meeting was interrupted by someone knocking at the outer gate of the house where they were gathered. Notice thirdly, improbable outcomes. The first improbable outcome is the release of Peter from prison by an angel of the Lord. The prisoner is released. It's such a wonderful story. I would just spoil it by trying to retell it to you. Read it again for yourself. However, notice one or two things that you could easily miss. 
First of all, think of Peter. It's the night before his trial. The crowds are in Jerusalem. Herod is in his palace. And there he is, chained between two soldiers in the maximum security jail, in the maximum security section, chained to two soldiers, two more soldiers outside. It's probably, humanly speaking, his last night on earth. So what would you be doing, chained between two soldiers? Peter is sleeping soundly. So soundly, it's going to take an angel to wake him up. Some people have pointed out that Peter could rest in the assurance, if, you're in, if you know the Gospels well, at the end of John 21, the Lord Jesus Christ told Peter uh, that he would suffer, but not until he was an old man. And some people say, well, okay, you can just rest knowing this is not, no sweat for me. I've got the promises of God. How many of us with the promises of God have still spent all night awake, not able to sleep because we couldn't trust them? Notice also that when the angel of the Lord awakens Peter, he thinks he must be dreaming or seeing a vision, despite the similar experience not long before, the one in Acts 5. And so his chains fall off. The angel says, put your sandals on, get your cloak around you. It must have been a weird experience. You think of it. It's just a wonderful story, isn't it? And he comes and then there's the final outer gate of the prison. It's a lovely Greek word there. It says, as they came to the prison door, it opened... In Greek it says automate, from which we get automatic. This is the first example in human history of automatic doors opening. <laughs> and suddenly the angel departs and Peter finds himself in the streets outside, rescued from prison. And finally he comes to himself and says, I must be dreaming. No, I'm not. Now I know without a doubt the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches, from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. So he makes his, his way to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, which must have been a known meeting place for the believers. It's large enough to accommodate many people, and it's one of those houses with an outer courtyard, with a gate, and then an inner house where the believers are gathering. And so Peter stands there, knocking at the gate. And of course, all the rest are praying. So this, this wee servant girl, who, who's gone down in history, we know her name, lovely name, Rhoda, she comes to the door and Peter says, It's me, Peter! And she's so excited, she rushes back to the... You can imagine, I, we've all been to prayer, most of us have been to prayer meetings. You imagine you're in this prayer meeting and everybody's praying fervently, Lord, save Peter, rescue him, hear our cry, O Lord, and whatever. And the servant girl comes and says, Peter's at the door! And what happens? Everybody says, wow, fantastic, praise the Lord, let's celebrate. Now they say, you're mad, woman. And she says, no, no, it, it is him! It must be his guardian angel. The Jews believed that everybody had guardian angels. It must be his guardian angel. It is him! Look, we've got to get on with this prayer meeting. Let's just sort this out. And they go to the door. Peter must have been getting very agitated by this time, wondering if he's going to get picked up by the secret police standing out there in the, in the middle of the night, knocking on the door and shouting at me, Peter! And finally they discover, it is! The story is filled with humour. It has all the marks of an eyewitness account probably related to Luke, maybe by Rhoda herself, or maybe John Mark, who accompanied them on one of their missionary journeys. Peter is released from prison in answer to the prayers of those who didn't expect their prayers to be answered. He's released from prison in answer to the prayers of those who didn't expect their prayers to be answered. Now, we've been challenged by the prayer life of the other church when we think of our own prayer life. But here, told with absolute honesty, as the Word of God always is, 
Here's something to encourage us. Can we not identify with praying for something and yet not really expecting God to answer our prayers? A lack of expectation. And how many of us in the past have been just absolutely astonished when God has answered our prayers, sometimes beyond what we expected? What a relief to know, as we've said twice already in this service, that God is able to do far more than we ask or imagine, and he actually does. So Peter motions the excited believers, Shh, just keep quiet. It's the middle of the night. The neighbors might hear. The secret police might move in. He tells them what has happened, and then after instructing to pass on the news to the other leaders who aren't present, he leaves for a safe place where he'll not be rearrested immediately and recaptured, probably somewhere beyond Herod's jurisdiction. You can imagine the commotion in the morning. I mean, imagine you're one of the... Well, you probably wouldn't want to imagine you're one of those two Roman soldiers chained to Peter. And you, maybe they were asleep as well and they wake up in the morning and they discover the change and there's a gap. And they go to the soldiers at the door and say, what's happened? Where's Peter? And they say, we don't know. We've been here all night. Nobody's come this way. And they go to the outer door and it's still locked. It was an improbable outcome. After a thorough investigation, Herod, dismissive, of course, of the possibility of divine intervention, as are many modern critics of this story, who have no experience of the power of God, concluded it must be an inside job. Roman law said that if you were guarding someone and he escaped, you suffered the penalty of the person who's escaped. And so they're all executed. It's an improbable outcome, isn't it? But something else improbable also follows as reported in the next verses by Luke. And this story is reported in Josephus, the Jewish historian, in much more graphic detail. Not only is the prisoner released, but, nice catchphrase, the persecutor deceased. We read on that Herod goes to Caesarea to settle a dispute. Uh, Josephus tells us, it's worth reading if you've got it, well, maybe most of you haven't got copies of Josephus, but you probably find it on the internet. But it's a lovely story how he relates it, that Herod appeared early in the morning, there's this huge crowd of people there, and he was dressed in a garment that was made in, totally of silver. And it shone brightly, and it was early in the morning, and as the rising sun came up, it shone straight on Herod on this silver, silver cloak he was wearing, and it just flashed, and all the crowd was so amazed. And they shouted out, He's a god! And in his arrogance, Herod doesn't refute what they says, but accepts their homage. And at that very moment, the angel of the Lord acts once more, this time not in salvation, but in divine judgment, as he's struck down by intestinal pains. Josephus, of course, did not attribute it to an angel, but records that Herod suffered extreme agony. You can also read all sorts of articles from medical people telling you exactly what kind of worms it was that ate him up. If you're really interested, it was either roundworms or tapeworms, but we won't go into detail. Uh, but, but the poor man suffered in extreme agony for five days and on the fifth day died. Interestingly, the same word for worms used here is used by the Lord Jesus Christ to describe hell as a, a place of unending agony Mark 9, 48, he said, Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It is a reminder to all of us that God intervenes in salvation, but to those who arrogantly oppose him, he also intervenes ultimately in judgment. This is the second improbable outcome in Acts 12. Who would have thought when it begins that it would end with Herod safe and well and Herod dying in agony? Here we see how God is able to reverse circumstances. 
In his excellent commentary on Acts, John Stott writes, At the beginning of the chapter, Herod is on the rampage, arresting and persecuting church leaders. At the end, he himself is struck down and dies. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Then he concludes, Such is the power of God to overthrow hostile human plans and establish his own in place. Tyrants may be permitted for a time to boast and bluster, oppressing the church and hindering the spread of the gospel, but they will not last. In the end, their empire will be broken, their pride abased. Now this is a great encouragement to Christians, especially Christians suffering for their faith like our brothers and sisters in Indonesia. It is also a serious warning to those who oppose Christ and his people. So, some concluding lessons on prayer. What have we learnt today? Let me briefly summarise. First of all, God acts in answer to prayer. The power of the state, the power of official religion, was ranged against the Christian community. The only weapon they had at their disposal was prayer. Yet, what an effective weapon. In another excellent commentary on Acts, Richard Longenecker writes, Peter's deliverance must be ascribed entirely to God, for it was in no way due to the apostles' own efforts or those of the Christian community. Apart, of course, from their prayer. Of course, apart from their prayer. You see, God chooses to act through prayer. See, some people say, well, look, the Lord Jesus promised to Peter that he wouldn't die until he was an old man. Therefore, he was completely safe. And God's plan was to save Peter anyway. God's plan was to send an angel. So why didn't all the Christians go home and have a good night's rest and celebrate the next day when Peter was released? Why bother praying? If God is sovereign, they say, then he would have saved Peter anyway. The flaw in the argument is the last word. If God is sovereign, then he would have saved Peter anyway. God is sovereign and chose to save Peter not any way, but by one way, by prayer. That is our privilege. That is our responsibility. That is why we pray. God in his great work using angels says, yes, I'll do it, but I need someone to pray. Are we the people who will pray? And this story also told us that God acts in answer to prayer beyond what we expect. You see, God's answers are not in proportion to our faith, thankfully. Jesus said it only requires faith like a grain of mustard seed, the tiniest seed. Do you remember that story when that man came to Jesus? His son was demon-possessed and he kept throwing himself in the fire and damaging himself. And he said, Lord, Lord, if you can help me, take pity on us. And Jesus said, if you can, everything is possible for him who believes, says Jesus. Puts the onus back on the man. And the, the man's father exclaimed, remember the words in the authorised version, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. I often find myself in that situation, don't you? Where some great challenge lies ahead of us. And you wonder, well, hard to believe what God is going to do and ha- what he will do in this situation. Just take a simple example. The, you know, our project we're looking at to, to raise £600,000 to put a building up at Nidri. It seems a huge figure, doesn't it? 
And you say, well, humanly speaking, I can't see how we're going to get that. But if God has called us and placed this challenge in front of us, then we need to say, Lord, I believe, I'm going to pray. We'll meet for prayer. Put it on our agenda and plead with God that he will prompt someone else or us to give. So God acts in prayer beyond what we expect. But notice one final thing, we're almost there, which we need to take into account. Sometimes God answers prayer not beyond what we expect, but not what we expect or ask for. He answers as he chooses. How do we know that? Well, it's quite simple. Herod executed John and chopped his head off. Now, we're not told in the book of Acts, but I am as sure as I can be that when James was taken by Herod, I'm sure the early Christians prayed for James. I'm sure they prayed for his release. And then came the news. Not an angel delivering him, but Herod sent someone to chop his head off. Did God not answer? Yes, he did, but not what they expected. The American pastor, James Montgomery Boyce, wrote, God is sovereign in our lives and does what he will do. He chooses one to glorify him by his or her life. He chooses another to glorify him by his or her death. It's not for us to make that determination. You see, if you've been a Christian, you prayed for James and Herod had chopped his head off, would you have bothered praying when Peter was in prison? Would you have said, didn't work last time? God didn't answer? Forget it. No, no, they still prayed. Recognizing that God is sovereign. And whatever crisis we go through, make no mistake, the point of this story is not if you're in prison that God will send an angel to rescue you. The point of this story is that God will do what he chooses. That nothing is beyond his power, but it's also everything is subject to his perfect will. So is there anything we can be certain of? Yes, that God's plan will triumph, that all people will hear his word, And that's how the story ends in verse 24. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. And God's word increases and spreads in the early church far more often through the blood of the martyrs, which was the seed of the church, as Tertullian said, than by the life of the Christians. Nothing hinders the work of the gospel going out in God's way. And if God chooses to do it by our lives, great. If he chooses to do it by sickness, by bereavement, by unemployment, by crises, even by death. That's his choice, not ours. But we can rest in the assurance that God's will will be done and the gospel will continue to go out until Christ returns. It's good news for all. The greatest miracle is when people are reconciled to God, born again, of his spirit. That's the most incredible outcome for any of us here. The most incredible outcome is that any of us are here this morning. So we began with the Wesley hymn. Let's conclude with the Wesley hymn, and I've chosen it for a particular reason. It's number 33 if you need a